And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Monday, July 27th, 2020. And I have my friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you doing, Pam? It's been a while since we've talked. I'm doing great. I missed you. I missed you too. Nice I bet you've uh, been pretty busy in the in the meantime, though. I know that uh, the last we talked, things were winding down a little bit with uh, with COVID patients. And then I, you know, I turn on the news every night, and uh, there's. Uh, not all good news about it. So how's, how's it going on the Elmhurst Memorial Hospital front as it relates to uh, COVID patients? Well, I'll give you an update, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what I've noticed over the last few weeks while we haven't been talking. So today we have 12 positive inpatients with 12 that are pending results. We've had a total of, um, of 77 deaths. So that is up from 66 deaths the last time we talked. Um, and we've had uh, in the state in uh, a total, we went from 142,461 positive cases up to 172,655 positive cases. Um, in DuPage County went from 8,993 positive cases to 10,953 positive cases. And deaths for the state went from 6,902 cases to 7,416. And for the good news, we have discharged. Last time, there were 399 discharges of COVID patients. Right. And to date, there's 459 discharges. And the state recovery rate from COVID is 95%. Wow. Now, what I would like to say is I've been paying attention. So during the weeks that we haven't been speaking, no, we were 12 last time, 12 this time, but we've gone up and we've come down. 12 has probably been our lowest number of patients in the hospital at any one time, but we got back up to 19 patients that were positive in the hospital. And, and I also get a list of all of the people who get tested in our system and who um, are positive that don't come into the hospital. And I've noticed there's a lot of younger people being coming up positive. People, teenagers and in their 20s, where when we first started, it was 40s, 50s, 60s, and it got more elderly. And now, um, for the last few weeks, I've noticed a lot of teenagers and in their 20s. Now, there is a, still some elderly and some um, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and there's occasionally a child, um, like there was a nine-year-old over the weekend. But uh, primarily, it's interesting that there's so many young people coming up positive. Well, I think they're out uh, playing in the summer heat and uh, hanging out with their friends maybe a little more than they were in the beginning, but but who knows. Um, how about staff? How are they doing? Well, since we talked last, we have had a total of seven employees who have tested positive. And again, a lot of that is due to, um, you know, being out in the community and they're just one of the many community members getting, uh, that do get the disease. Now, we have um, tested right now 
for antibiotic testing, 4,300 people. I can't tell you how many of those were our employees, but we did give antibiotic testing free to our employees, so a lot of people did get tested. And of the 4,300 people that have been tested, we have a 7.8% positivity rate, meaning only out of all those, 7.8% had the disease at one point in time, whether they knew it or not. And um, do you have a feeling for how many people of that 7.8% probably knew they had it anyway, or was it a low percentage? No, I, I think probably many of them didn't know they had it. They just wanted to um, find out if they had antibodies and find out if they, they were one of the people without symptoms. Because usually if you've had it, you don't really worry about getting your antibody testing. Although some people did just to know if they had antibodies for the pla- being able to donate plasma. As it relates to the antibody test, should we be hoping that a lot of people have had it already? <laughs> well, if you want to get to the herd immunity, yes. But obviously, 7.8% is not going to get us to herd immunity. <laughs> We're not anywhere close. And I'm not necessarily wanting people to be sick. So, uh, yes, it's kind of a, a catch-22, whether we want people to have it or not. What's the current status of your ability to test? Is it still just people with doctor's orders? Right now, it is still people with doctor's orders. Um, we we have, though, um, had some issues with having enough tests because there were some issues with the test products um, for a little bit, and we got that fixed, so we had a little bit of a delay. Um, we, use, we do some in-house testing, and we do about 1,000 tests per day that go out of house to an organization called ARUP, A-R-U-P. And that takes a longer turnaround time to get results. But we are, for those people that it's not emergent, if they have the results right away, like people who have had major exposures and they they need to be tested, um, but they're not showing any symptoms, we might send them out to ARA. And those those would take four to five days to come back. But we're doing about 1,800 tests per day of the molecular testing. And then we're doing about 1,200 tests of the antibody testing per day. of the molecular testing, we've run about 57,000 tests so far, and of all those tests, we have about a 10% positivity rate at this point. And again, a lot of those people probably have symptoms too, right? The ones that are testing positive, but not all? Correct. Not all, but a lot of them, yes. So I've heard about, you know, initially we heard a lot about the nasal swab tests, and then we've heard about, I think they call them spit tests or saliva tests. Is, is a nasal swab test still being used? Okay, so there's two types of nasal swabs tests. So just because I know there's a lot of confusion around is it uncomfortable and do you really have to go that far up my brain with the testing. So there's one called a nasal pharyngeal test and one is a nasal swab and then there's the saliva. So we're here at at Elmhurst. We originally had to do the nasal pharyngeal because that was the only testing we had. But um, the testing we do now does not require a nasopharyngeal, and the nasopharyngeal is the one that goes all the way up into your brain when they're doing it. Um, so that's the one that's uncomfortable. But the nasal swab is not uncomfortable. It only goes up a little ways. And, um, and all of our testing right now is nasal swab testing. We are not doing any of the, um, of the saliva test at this point. Uh, if, it, if we find out that it's... Um, as efficient as the testing we're doing, then we may switch to that depending on availability. But right now, all we're doing is a nasal swab test. Well, that's good to know because I hear a lot of people 
saying, I don't want to have that swab put up into my brain. <laughs> it is kind of scary <laughs> when you think about it. It apparently pretty it uncomfortable. Um, you mentioned earlier that there have been quite a few teenagers, people in their 20s, and even a nine-year-old that has tested positive recently. So my question is, how about admittances from those young folks? Have you seen a lot of young people admitted overnight for treatment? No, usually they're, they're not. The youngest we've had admitted was 19. Um, and we've had some 20-year-olds. I know we have a 23-year-old, I think, right now that's in the hospital and is pretty sick. Um, but primarily it's more the middle age and the elderly that end up being hospitalized. And, and are you seeing for the few young folks you have had that they do have pre-existing conditions or are these people that are otherwise healthy? It's a mix. I mean, there's, there's both, those that are healthy and those that have pre-existing conditions. How about long-term issues? You know, we had heard back a month or two ago that there were some very young folks that suffered with COVID that might have some longer-term problems as a result of it. Have you seen any of that or heard of any of that? I've heard of it. We haven't seen it here. Well, that's good. So I, yeah, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, we talked uh, earlier when you said young people, and I made the comment about maybe some of the recreational opportunities that the young folks are all of a sudden having that they didn't have earlier on in the pandemic may be contributing to that. And I'm sure that that there's there's been some of that. So I guess really where I'm going, though, is there's a lot of controversy about schools opening and what the right move is. And you've got some school districts that are – being very conservative and starting online, some that are somewhere in between with a hybrid or maybe starting in person and then going to an online model after the teachers kind of evaluate the classes. Um, are you anticipating a lot of hospitalizations as a result of that? And if so, is it the students or would it be more the, the teachers and the family members that are older, do you think? Okay, um, that was a long question, so let me kind of clarify. So we're, we're seeing a lot of um, increase in young adults and teenagers who are coming up positive for COVID. As you said, there's a lot of family gatherings and graduations, team practices, it's starting up the sports again, and people are not necessarily wearing their mask and not necessarily social distancing. And so one person gets positive, many of them end up getting positive. So that's a concern. And in terms of school, the issue is a couple things. We don't want any kids to get COVID and get really ill because there's a different kind of encephalitis that happens with children. It's very rare, but it has happened in other states um, where younger kids have gotten that and have gotten very ill or have died. And so if you were the one child that ends up getting a bad case or has that kind of um, reaction, the schools would never forgive themselves, and either would you as a parent. But the bigger issue for school opening is, as you said, the kids – potentially getting the disease, not having symptoms, which is what it seems to be more, is that kids, when they have it, they don't have symptoms, and then them spreading it because they're not able to follow good infection control with the, keeping the mask on, keeping the social distancing, and them spreading it to either the faculty or to their parents or their grandparents, and those people getting very ill and ending up getting hospitalized or, or potentially dying, which would be very, very sad. We have seen in all the states that when they open up, 
they get an increase in infections. And so even here, you know, we've not totally opened up yet. You can see that we have not eliminated the disease. And so I get worried when we talk about opening schools, if we don't do it in a really careful way that helps kids be able to maintain social distance and keep masks on but and keep hands clean. And I think that's really hard with kids. Well, I know my, my question was rambling on, but you did a great job of addressing all of it. So I appreciate that. Um, we've talked in the past about the fact that there really isn't any hard evidence on whether or not that somebody who's been infected uh, and had COVID, um, whether or not they're resistant to getting it again. Is there any new evidence that they may be resistant? So there's there's not yet. Um, you know, there doesn't seem like people are getting it again, although there's some odd cases that look like they may have. It could be that they never really went away. Sometimes it's been hanging on with people. Some people um, test positive for months after the fact that after it's gone. So um, we don't know anything about that yet. And that's also what um, concerns us about when we do get a vaccine is how long will a vaccine work as well. We've talked about uh, the use of uh, remdesivir and certain other therapeutics. Are there any new ones that have come on the scene in the last few weeks? So there's really two ways we're approaching medication management with COVID patients. So the the one that you talked about, remdesivir, and um, and convalescent plasma, which is the blood that has the antibodies, are are two ways to um, try to eliminate the disease from being in the body. So it attacks the viral load. But there's two other things. It's the um, desamexone and um, Ectemra, which both are um, work on uh, your the reaction the body has to the disease and helps eliminate that reaction because your body tends to overcompensate, trying to heal itself, and then it attacks yourself. And so those two drugs help eliminate that um, reaction. And so those are two different ways of approaching it, and they are used at different points in the illness. So the first one, the first two, the convalescent plasma or remdesivir, you would use when someone's getting having trouble with their oxygen levels and maybe getting to a point where they might end up needing to be intubated. The other two you would use if they are already at that point of um, being close to intubation and you want to um, prevent them from getting worse. We've over the years, you know, a lot of us that get flu shots, and I'm a big believer in getting a flu <laughs> shot. But the uh, the nurse that gives me my flu shot every year, she says, typically, you know, this is only for three or four common strains that we expect to be prevalent this year. So do you think that when there is some sort of a vaccine that for COVID or for coronavirus, do you think it'll be similar where there's there'll be multiple strains and they try to find the common ones or or will it just be one particular strain? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, so I have no idea about that, except for the fact that these kind of viruses tend to mutate a little bit, so change strains. And so I would imagine that there's going to be um, that question that will happen once the vaccines are developed is, if will it cover 
multiple strains or will it only cover one strain at a time? Um, your nurse is absolutely correct about the flu shots, and that's why some years you get a flu shot and we don't have a bad flu season, and some years you get a flu shot and we do have a bad flu season, and that's because whatever strain that was in that flu shot may not be the strain that is active that year. So, um, yeah, hopefully this at least with the coronavirus, if we get a vaccine that works on the most uh, deadly or infectious one and we can prevent that, we will be in better shape. So hopefully the crystal ball's still out. What do you what do you think in terms of a vaccine? You think there is some <laughs> sort of a chance before the end of the year? Well, right now we've seen several companies that have are entering the trial phase of a vaccine, and so that's really promising. Um, they're moving much faster than than would normally happen. They've got a lot of money coming in and by the, from the federal government that's helping them be able to move quickly on developing this. Um, what we want to worry about is what are the side effects of this vaccine and making sure that it has some lasting effects. So it's not going to be anytime soon, but maybe by um, by December or January, which would be really fast if it did happen. Well, I certainly hope so. So we haven't spoken in four weeks, and I know that the hospital still had a lot of uh, operating procedures in place that that were helping keep the hospital safe uh, from the co- from the coronavirus. So, have there been any new changes in the hospital's procedures uh, in the last few weeks? Yes, actually, we uh, moved to having temperature kiosks for all the staff entrances, and so staff are now doing their own monitoring, and we're not having uh, people there monitoring everybody as they walk in the organization. So that's one change which helps us be able to focus our monitoring on anybody who's visiting the hospital or new patients coming in. And, and we have also tried to, because we know patients really want their family with them while, when they're in the hospital um, or their care partners, we have uh, moved from having only one visitor for non-COVID patients to ha- allowing two visitors for non-COVID patients, and we have begun to have, um, on occasion, visitors a visitor for a COVID-positive patient, depending on the situation. As long as the visitors follow the rules and help us keep the organization safe, making sure everybody wears their masks, does their social distancing, follows whatever uh, safety precautions we have, depending on the uh, type of patient they're visiting, um, we'll be able to continue allowing people in. And I know it makes a big difference for patients when they're allowed to have visitors with them. Sure. And the nurses are on the front lines and have to have to educate folks and hopefully enforce that. So, uh, I feel for them because I'm sure most people are pretty compliant, but I'm I'm guessing just like we see out in public, there's some people that aren't aren't so willing to don that mask. Well, you know what? I gotta say that what you're saying is so true, and I think I think everybody kind of rose to the occasion while we were in the beginning phases of this pandemic and tried to follow the rules, but as it's it's keeps going longer and longer. I think people are um, tired and a little more short-tempered. And we have people trying to come in the hospital, and, and our, our um, screeners are not clinical people, most of them. Some of them are, but not all of them. And they're being some people coming to the hospital are not being very nice to them and are getting really angry or refusing to put on their mask or not, you know, just 
not helping the situation and, and our, I feel bad for our screeners. So I would ask the community, please be understanding and patient. We are only asking you to do things that will help protect your loved one, help protect you, and help protect our staff. Um, you know, I, when I hear it in the news that people don't want to do this for others, I, I feel really bad because I, I don't think you understand that your actions can have a serious consequence on other people. Amen. Well said. Um, how about hospital activity uh, outside of COVID patients? Is it is it back to near normal? Well, pretty much. Our, our surgical volume is almost normal. Um, summer is usually a quieter time for us, so we're not overflowing with patients. But our emergency departments have picked up. Oh, I did want to say... Um, that our immediate cares have opened back up most of them if they're not open yet they'll be open no they're all open now i think and um, we are starting to do covid testing in the immediate cares as well we will eventually close our um, corporate drive-by testing services and just have it in the immediate cares and um, in the emergency departments so i take it that volume is dropping a little bit at the corporate testing center no it's not really dropping there it's just not been as convenient for everybody to go there so by opening it up in other locations we won't have the need as much there okay uh several months ago you mentioned that you were encouraging staff to take a few minutes of me time every day you know relax somehow meditate are you uh, doing that yourself still <laughs> Uh, yes, I do follow what I preach, and I think it's really important to take time for yourself and and, um, and also to just make sure you understand, you know, that going at full speed and trying your adrenaline going um, to try to combat this kind of thing takes a toll on your body if you don't relax and if you don't breathe, you know, take some deep breaths, meditate, enjoy nature. Um, I was out all weekend outside. It's, it's just helps you be able to be the best you can be. And I encourage everybody to do that. Were you up in the Arctic circle? It was too warm to be outside this weekend. I was on water. So the, well, good for you. As as the wind going, it was okay. It was a little <laughs> warm. I, I'm kidding. I was outside too, but it was very, very warm. Well, thank you for spending this time with us and, uh, Thank you again to your staff for all the hard work they're doing. It's I, I know things are a little bit easier now, but it still can't be easy inside those walls. So thank you so much. Well, thank you again for doing this broadcast. I do think it's very important for people out in the community to understand what's happening. It's not gone away yet. Um, we want it to. We really do. And if if they're predicting, so I've always thought that the the winter would be really bad because of flu and uh, COVID at once, but I was talking to some of the um, infection control doctors, and they're thinking that if we're continuing to wear our mask and do the good hygiene we've been doing, we may not have a bad flu season after all, because we'll be protecting ourselves in multiple ways. So hopefully we will be doing that, and we will have a good winter as well. One piece of good news. Thanks so much, <laughs> Pam. We look forward to talking again soon. Thank you. Bye. This is Aaron Jason, Business Development Coordinator for the City of Elmhurst. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Hi, 
This is Pamela Dunley. As president and CEO of Elmhurst Hospital, I know that sometimes laughter can be the best medicine. When I need a good laugh, I tune into the E-Town Lowdown. And you should too. Give it a try. The staff and management of the E-Town Lowdown would like to assure our more sensitive listeners that our food critic Sal is really half Italian. His mother is from Poland and his father is from the great country of Italy. We hope you will enjoy and not be offended. Hey, how you doing? Slappy Sal here for the E-Town Lowdown with yet another food review. You know, it, normally Slappy Sal, he, he doesn't go to a whole lot of Irish places, but it was around St. Paddy's Day, I figured, hey, maybe I ought to give it a try. So I headed on over to Riley's on York Road. You know, the gathering place, they call it. Figure, hey, if it's good enough for the Irish to gather there, it's probably good enough for Sal, too. So I went over there with Denise and the nephew. I did that joke so old, I think my grandmother brought it over on the boat with her. So we go over to Riley's, we're checking the place out. I gotta tell you right off the bat, Sal's uh, impressed. They got PBRs. Now, I I know as a fact, both Robbie and Rick have been known to tip a PBR or two in their day. So I figure, good enough for me, good enough for them. I heard a rumor once that PK likes to tip a PBR too. I can't prove that. But uh, maybe someday I'll get them over to Riley's. Turns out they got really good food. I like this place. Got a comfortable sandwich type of an environment. Get a burger. They got something called a hangover sandwich. I wasn't hungover, so I didn't get any. But, uh, you know, they, they make a nice comfort food. Uh, Tuesdays is what I understand is the day you want to go and get a burrito. They got a uh, cook, makes an authentic burrito. Apparently it's out of this world. So I got to say, not too bad for an Italian being in an Irish place. I heard a rumor once we had a uh, half Italian and half Irish mayor, so he probably hung out there, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, not bad. It's a comfortable gathering place with good comfort, solid food. So Slappy Sal says, hey, if you're in the mood, go check out Riley's. And remember, like John Lennon said, all you need is love, but a cannoli don't hurt either. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.